Okay. So I do not believe that the first episode covered the topic sufficiently enough. Austin, I believe, disagrees. And <laughs> um, yeah. again, it's not the most uh, riveting thing about uh, ancient philosophy, but I think it will set us up going forward eventually when we start talking about knowledge and the nature of the gods and then hedonism um, to round out his ethical framework. So I think I still think important. It's that foundational. Thing. It's one of those things where if we jumped right into the ethics, anyone can ask, OK, but why? Like, yeah. why is that the acceptable and best answer based on this shenanigan? Exactly. Right? So we covered a lot of ground and maybe it would behoove. Um, it would maybe benefit the audience if we surmise, summarize. Yeah. So what do you think? So like, since you're the one who's, uh, you're dumb, kind of, <laughs> you're kind of the guy who's asking the questions. Yeah. Here, right. So what do you, what do you remember? Okay. Atoms are the smallest unit of matter. Mm-hmm. I, the definition are weird. They're the smallest thing. Yes. And there are an infinite amount of them, mm-hmm. though there are limited types of them. Right. Almost, I imagine, almost like a periodic. Exactly. Certain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember getting a little bit into also like universe theory, where like the universe is infinite big yes yeah he says that the universe is In, it, it infinitely, goes infinitely big, therefore yeah. there are an infinite number of atoms to fill right. Pop right 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 um and then i remember um i remember they're infinite uh always existed limited types and then they also like aided in our sense perception and he started breaking down how atoms interact with the different senses. yes and i was like that's where I was like, okay, can we be done? <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm giving up. I don't understand. <laughs> well, I mean, it's important because eventually we're going to get into more interesting topics, right? So like one of the best things I, or not best, most interesting things that I find about him is his idea of the composition of the soul. And, and I know that's like a, a very, that's a topic that we seem to come back to a lot when we're covering a thinker, like when we covered the Stoics and we cover, cover Platonism, we talked about soul composition. Um, and then it's interesting because we in have here is that you have an atomic theory for the soul and it's like, he talks about the soul being made of atoms. So I think that it's, it's really important for us to, and the gods being made of atoms and like, and so it's uh, it's when we get into those later episodes, I think it's important for us to kind of make sure that we have our, have our terms down, but I think that's a good foundation. Also, one of the things we're missing is that there are two things that exist fundamentally. Do you remember what they are? Matter. Well, atoms, right. Matter. And, and- what is the opposite of that? Right. So the two things are atoms and void. So that's the one. Right. Okay. Void was the word. Right. So atoms like are things like the base unit of things that exists and then the void because it allows things to exist in space. Um, and so the void is just nothingness. And that's why atoms, we can perceive that atoms move, things move through space. And so therefore, if everything was atoms, nothing could be able to move. And if everything was void, nothing would be. So we're in this balance. Yeah. Now we did we talk about the motion of atoms, like the uh, what was it? The curve. The yeah, so that's the an swerve. Important. Yeah, the swerve. So one of the so we're gonna, I guess the way to round out the conversation about atoms is to just kind of like talk about random things about them, so that way we can kind of make a composite set. Yeah. Fill in the gaps. Yeah. And so, so how how to explain? So there are two things that I want to go over, like, is as I what I see as most important is that. 
the the ceaseless the swerve the ceaseless collision of atoms that leads to creation and then the shape of atoms yes so that's really three things but it's really just two okay um so <laughs> because the ceaseless collision leads to the shapes so that's what i'm trying to Got say it. so the first thing is is that for some reason epicurus like i guess you have to ask yourself the question like if atoms exist how do they get into motion because obviously like it is the constant vibration and motion of atoms that causes things to be as they are today um and so that's why he kind of gets into and i think we talked about in the last episode the idola the idea of the atomic films emitting off of the objects and so obviously atoms are in motion but like how and where does that motion come from well epicurus and then lucretius after him and so and again to highlight that point i'm basing my a lot of my research based off of lucretius on the nature of the universe um not so much on epicurus because again he didn't write as much but lucretius gives a really good general handbook as to exactly what mm-hmm. epicureans believed um and so he talks about you're gonna love this so this is the part of atoms you're gonna like um he talks about atoms starting in a downward motion where they're falling so imagine rain coming straight down got it and the atoms are moving down and but then how is it possible that if everything started downwards because you can have like one atom on top of the other falling right because they're the minimum of matter they they won't combine Mm -hmm. you know it's their own subset so they're falling down how is it that they're able to collide and create motion because like if you remember like back in middle school like those textbooks when you were going through chemistry or something like that and you remember this is a gas all the atoms are very apart and they bounce around and you remember those diagrams of how they're all moving in different ways how do we get to that point if they're always falling down the universe being infinitely large going downward in scope well then what uh what we need to come about of trying to think of uh, of it of how we we're going to introduce this idea of motion is that epicurus and they don't talk about it very much epicurus and lucretius end up saying that there was a swerve at some random point in time you know probably at the very beginning i don't know but like at some point there was a slight swerve in an atom which caused the other atom to bump into that atom and then caused everything to start jumbling about and then what you see is yes. that however the the general tendency of atoms is to come down and i think the reason why they believe that is because of the phenomenon of gravity so because again like all you had was your for them the sense perception like what you see is what's true not what you believe about what you see it's confirming what you see is to be true and so if all i see just imagining is that things trend downwards because of gravity you cannot you can't get off the ground you know, a bird has to land eventually. I throw a ball into the air, it comes down. So then therefore I believe that atoms trend downwards. Yeah. And so they even believe the earth. And now uh, Lucretius has some weird parts about how the earth is actually a disc and it comes, but whatever. So the thing is, is that things, even the earth is trending downwards yeah. because of this phenomenon of gravity. And so atoms come down, but there was a swerve and then this swerve led to free will. that's so funny and and, but but you know you can see (laughs) you're good yeah yeah. like you can see even in the the modern view of uh you know we see we observe reality and see that stars are red shifting away from a center point and so we infer back and say there must have been one you know big bang which led to this motion and so they're kind of doing the same thing, saying, right, like, well, if everything trends down, but there is variation, there must have been this one singular point where um, uh, uh, 
I don't want to say arbitrary because I mean, but you can question there, right? And say, well, how did the swerve start? Right. You, you maybe have identified a cause, but not necessarily the first cause. What caused that out of the swerve? But they don't go right. deeper into that. Yeah. Right? The only the only thing actually that I put on these notes, you know, was that Lucretia supposes that there is an atomic swerve where atoms will randomly move slightly, uh, which allows them. And I think so. I think he even believes that atoms just randomly like there wasn't just like a first swerve and then nothing else. I think he just says that they just swerve um, will allows them to begin an oblique motion and collide into other atoms. This change in direction creates a vector of general motion for atoms, which is called downward. And so it's immaterial and only refers to the general vector of motion for atoms. This atomic swerve is extremely important and gives rise to the world as we see it today, as well as the very notion of free will. However, not much time was spent on the concept because we have to imagine that it, for them, you know, at least, you know, I don't know, because there's going to be more modern thinkers who don't see an issue. But for the ancient Greeks, they would have seen it as an issue that if everything was material, if everything was atoms and they behaved in a certain characteristic because it's a material thing, then how is it that we seem to have choice? So you have to introduce for them in a weird way. You have to introduce randomness into the atom in order for you to have randomness in your thought and in your action and therefore creating this idea of free will. The atoms themselves have to be unpredictable and swerve as if for having absolutely no reason whatsoever in order to sustain the idea of a materialistic worldview still having this idea of will. Does that make sense? I think so. So if everything was downward and law was the law of gravity or whatever they're referring to. Yeah, right. I'm only comparing it to gravity. Right, that's right. Kind of where so, it comes from. So if gravity was a law that could not be avoided uh, with no variation, then it follows that everything has been predetermined, just like that atom is predetermined to travel in, in this direction forever with, right. with no variation, right. so too would be the things that atoms assemble, which are humans. Right, but they couldn't even assemble if they were always in that oh, balance. Yes, yes. Right. See what I mean? Uh -huh. so, so we're supposing there must be a certain kind of chaos upon which right. the, the universe is built to allow for the chaotic choice right right well also in just the way that we have variety in life and things that are created mm -hmm. so like one of the things that stands out about epicurus and lucretius is that man like it's kind of like almost today where you see like our own modern ideas of what where creation comes from because he says he's like well there's an infinite amount of atoms and then they swerve and they collide with each other. And so he says that simply by brute force of these collisions, infinite amounts of collisions going on over time eventually created the world that we see today. That kind of sounds like evolution. Not saying that's right. a bad, it's a bad theory. I'm just saying that's what it sounds exactly, like. That's exactly what it sounds like. And it, he's, he talks about this extensively where he's like, he's like, yeah, they just like over it, the ceaseless collision and the various size and shapes of atoms and through time infinite, they were able to form macroscopic bodies. That's it. Through enough time and enough collisions, the conjoining of atoms was made possible and formed the world as we see it today. Okay, it's going to be important for us to get into gods. <laughs> I, I know that's a that's gods and the soul probably, probably the next. next yeah. But but the implication. Okay, I'm starting to see the far-reaching implications yes. of this because if mm -hmm. we are just if if this world, which seems orderly in the sense of like I can take a seed, put it in the ground, water it, take care of it, it grows into a plant that I can then harvest and reap. And like that seems like a an ordered process, right. but if it's really built on the chaotic result of of collisions of atoms, um, is there really a purpose 
that you can identify. So I'm curious where the gods come in to service his worldview. And but funny thing is that they don't. Aha. So like he so because he still forms an ethical framework. Like you're saying that we need to have like a purpose. And I think I think it's like um he uses the atoms to work around the atoms because the idea is that and this will lead into the ethics and I think, you know, like you said, this is important. It's good good foundation. And finally, you're interested in the atoms. <laughs> um, so the the thing is, is that think about it this way. The atoms are chaotic in the sense that the collision has caused creation and like the way that we see the world today. And in fact, he says the world is probably young. Um, funny enough, there's a line in there with Lucretius, I think, in book five, where he's talking about the um, the lots of different uh, uh, collisions that were made possible. And he was like, yeah, so we could probably imagine that the world is pretty young um, because of, you know, for no reason. He's just like, yes, it's probably pretty young. But he, um, I guess because of the rapidity of the atoms. But it, we, would, we would imagine that there's reason, but he uses the atoms and he says that, uh, you know, that it may seem chaotic. However, the atoms themselves remain unchanged. Like atoms, because he would say that the atoms themselves go on and on and on and on they are infinite it will continue to exist forever and so like the, an atom can't be destroyed right okay right so the idea is well and now we know that we do destroy atoms like we look at atomic explosions and that is the destruction of the atom through fission um but the that the like because is is everything in constant change or does everything stay the same? Like the big question, like is, is, is the universe just constant change and constant motion or does nothing change and everything is still. And then so for the Epicureans, they would say, well, the atom remains unchanged. That is the one solid brute fact of life. And so therefore gives reason to everything. However, everything else is subject to change based on the atom, which is unchanging. Okay. Okay. Well, I got to chew on that a little, a little longer to, to, to wrap my head around mm -hmm. what, what they're saying and what the implications are. So, so sorry, you said there were two things. So, so that is the that's, atomic that's, that's swerve. That's the collision and the swerve. Um, but then the other thing is, is the idea of, and this just gets, it, it's a quick topic really is when we get into the composition of atoms and we talk about um, like their shape. So his, it's funny because we usually talk about, so in modern atomic theory, the properties of atoms are based on what their protons and neutrons and their electrons. And it's not so much that the atoms necessarily are different shapes, but rather of a different um, a, a different composition at their at their base level, so that way it changes the properties of the atoms, and then which then they can go on to create molecules and and wow. and other molecular structures. Um, you can tell that I'm not <laughs> I'm not a scientist, um, but I uh, can't. <laughs> but for for Epicurus, he would say that like what it, like he kind of explains well, what's the difference between oil and water? Like these are two liquids, but while obviously one one is more viscous. And the other one is, is like is drinkable, uh, yeah, drinkable <laughs> or some some are some are not drinkable. And then why does the color change depending on how the light hits it? And he gets into all these things of like, how do I explain these things? And he talks about the shape of atoms and he's like in oil, the atom is slightly larger and it's thicker and more round. And then therefore, when they join together, it's it creates this oil. And then obviously atoms themselves, like the way that they're shaped may be like when the light hits it, the atom lights hit it and it refracts off that shape may produce this color um and we got into it the last wow, episode where it's okay. like do they do the atoms themselves possess possess the properties those secondary qualities of like the roughness of this table or 
you know, the color of a leaf or something like that? Do they possess those colors in and of themselves? And so therefore that color truly exists or is the color just a matter of our sense perception? And so Democritus, the first atomic theorist was like, no, like colors don't actually exist unless it's in your mind. It's really just the composition of the idola that makes you think that it is this color, but the atoms themselves don't possess that quality. Whereas interesting, whereas okay. Epicurus would say they do, which causes other problems down the road for him, I think. But he he would explain it as it is the shape and the size of the atoms. And more importantly, is that because of those collisions changes the shapes and sizes of atoms to make the different things that we see. Oh, today. So, so an atom can morph. Yes. But it won't change. But it, won't, it will always be an atom. So like in a way, like the kinds of atoms are not period. So you, as you mentioned, the periodic table earlier, it is not so much that the, the kinds of atoms are periodic tables. It is more of like, think of them as like Play-Doh, not P-L-A-T-O, but P-L-A-Y-D-O-H. So like, as like clay, like it's always the same. It's, it is clay. It is an atom. However, we can constantly change the shape of them okay. and how they can transmorph. Okay. So that's the shape of atom, the swerve of the atom. Mm-hmm. And then the collision of the atom. Oh, and so, the collision is with the swerve. Yes. Right. The various properties. So and I, I'm going to keep going back to my notes because unfortunately, like going into the book, like because I could open up Lucretius, but it, it would be difficult for me to find like proper quotes because it's like um, it's like, a, well, first off, it's a really long epic poem, you know, that's really beautiful. But like it's it's difficult to pull. It's to not pull a book of definitions. Of, right. Exactly. It would be, you know, and it's, it's quite long. But so like I remember in book four, he does talk about the difference between obviously the oil and the water and and the way that these are composed. But in my notes, I put the various properties of things can be explained partially by the fact that we cannot perceive the atomic level, but also by claiming atoms are of various sizes or shapes or the solidity of the composition, such as the difference between the olive oil and the water. Um, so, yeah. Um, so actually, it's right here. Um, in all directions, thin and easily unite when they meet in the air like spider's webs or leaf of gold of texture more thin than those which strike the eyes and provoke vision. So you have this idea of, of these different kinds of, ah, yeah, shapes, really, that kind of form. So once again, it's not only just the collision, but it's that collision that then leads to the different kinds of atoms that we see that form the things that we see. And that's what makes the universe basically go round. Um, or fall downward in their in their conception of things. I think we're starting to get the fuller picture on the atoms here. So so we've got the universe. I like to start big. Okay. The universe is infinite mm-hmm. because of the the javelin um, analogy. Yeah, he talks about throwing the javelin and then you just go up, pick it up, and throw it again. It's like obviously matter can keep going. Yeah. So therefore, infinite. Anything size can be judged based on like. An edge property mm-hmm. and if we hit an edge to the universe whatever that edge was would be incorporated into our definition of the universe which makes it by definition infinite and because we have concrete atoms that are observable um, here and they're not just evenly distributed throughout the universe and therefore almost invisible we know that there must be an infinite amount of atoms to spread out infinitely around this universe the universe is also um, in a downward motion, um, probably adopted from a theory of gravity. gravity. Um, but, but of course, if it was just a perfect downward motion, we would have no action, no collisions, and therefore no creation. 
So we describe this uh, idea of a swerve and a certain chaotic nature in each atom that allows it some freedom to move about. And those collisions with other atoms or atoms of the same type starts to build over time. I would think slowly. Apparently, he says the Earth is very quickly. Yeah, very quickly. He's like, he's like, yeah, it's probably probably took like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything comes together. Um, and those atoms, uh, the, the we talked about the film. Uh, that one I don't understand. The E I D O L A. Well, that we can we can do an episode on epistemology and and like knowledge and the soul, and then that will I think we can talk more or we can talk more about it in this episode. But the idola is the is the the basis of your knowledge, the thin atomic films that emit off of objects. And those films are atoms. Okay. So every, everything is atoms. They're like, I, he kind of describes them as like even smaller atoms that like, baby are able atoms. To like, yeah, they like come off of, again, it doesn't, you would think like, well, where do those come from? Like, how did the, how does that, it's like, no, it's all right. Just, let it, <laughs> yes, you know, just kind of let it, because practical. how are you going to, because like, how are you going to honestly like come up with this? You know what I mean? Like, how are you going to come up with this idea just by looking at things and say, like, well, if I believe that that's just atoms, how are like and I'm just atoms, how are they going to get across? And it's like they didn't have an idea of obviously the light, um, the, the light re like reflecting off of the surface produces the image of it in our eye, much like a camera rather than just like because, again, all things now, being physical. I, I'm not like, a, man, I, I did not. Well, I didn't take physics, and I, I don't remember chemistry that well, so maybe you can help me with, like, just really briefly. So, in modern science tells us, yes, there are atoms, but it also tells us about light waves and sound waves, okay. and those are not atoms in modern science, right? Those are... It's the vibration of atoms. Vibra so it is... Well, not light waves, because light is made, of, is made of atoms. Light is atoms. Okay, I didn't know that. I believe... Wait, yeah... Yeah. Right? I think so. <laughs> right. So so light and sound are really just are just different kinds of wave frequencies that you see in the world. Or not we'll see and hear. Right. So like sound just being the vibration, you know, of 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 atoms, but it's not but the sound itself, that phenomenon of sound is not made of atoms and just is the same as light. Like you wouldn't be able to perceive light if it wasn't for something to be illuminated, you know, just like in time, like you don't know time unless matter is in motion. Like you always use, uh, it was funny because in my training, we learned a lot about atomic clocks oh, and right. how the most, yeah, the most accurate clock being the atomic clock. And so, and there's two different kinds. Uh, one's rubinium and there's another kind, but it's like, it's like measuring the vibration of the atom and having that being uh, the measure of time because it's so consistent it's, yes exactly wow. and it's like that's how you know time interesting yeah yeah and so it's the same thing with light so something has to be illuminated for you to know that it's lit and so and that is just but the light waves. wave itself is right. not made up of atoms so so he's grouping all everything he's using atoms as as the building block for it, everything it is because there's only two things that exist yeah okay so it has to come down to either got it Okay, so so that's tremendous. This has been helpful, and I'm I, again. I'm I think I'm starting to see the implications. We're going to get more into it. Um, Knew you would. Could we could we speak a little more towards the epistemology, the i, I the idola, the yeah. how do we, we know these things? How do we actually sense these things? Uh, what are they qualifying as good? Uh, uh, the 
how do you take in knowledge? How do you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you know? How do you know things? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's fine. Um, and so, yeah. So, I mean, we talked about Idol in the last episode. We talked about it and we're talking about it now in this episode. You know, we don't really need to go too deep into it just to say that um, epistemology for Epicurus is purely based off a of sense perception. That's, that's it. So, whereas you had Plato who was like, and to an extent, the Stoics were like, can't really uh, trust your uh, senses. Um, you can't really know things in this material world. It's yeah, you got the, of, the allegory yeah. of the cave being exactly. the big, big exactly. One. And so, but for the Epicureans, they're like, no, um, you can only you can only per- like rely on sense perception, and your sense perception is infallible. And that sense perception comes from the idola. So the idola is really just an explanation of of how are we able to perceive things through uh, atoms and you know, those atoms are uh, being emitted off of, off the physical objects. And that's, that's all it is. So they've got in the sense perception section, he's, he only talks about sight, hearing and smell. Mm -hmm. So did he, did he count touch and taste as, um, senses or I think it's because the inconsistency of touch and taste that he kind of is like, no, (laughs) because like, like you and I may taste something right. And it'd be like, I like this food. I don't like this food. Like this may come across as like, I, you know, your palate may be more refined towards the tasting of wine versus whiskey or something. So like, I feel like, okay, like the tasting thing would be kind of inconsistent and also doesn't like, you can't taste, you cannot, how to put it, you cannot taste the, the architecture of a building. Does that make sense? (laughs) Like, it's like, if I tasted the building, like what I know, it's shape it's not yeah it's not the most important right and so you could say the same thing with with touch as well so then the other thing i was thinking is when it comes to epistemology so he's very sense heavy what about like thought heavy where does where does reason and and the mind take place yeah deductive logic is what you're asking about and you use it only when you're dealing with the issue of imperceptibles um so how to put it so two things um, one is that the atoms are obviously imperceptible and we can't really know them. And so in order to come up with explanations for things that happen and other phenomenology, um, we have to talk about the, uh, so when considering things, so when you're dealing with atoms, like you're only, you're using your logic to deal with the imperceptibles. So you can't really know the atoms. And so you have to, so like you have to kind of try to figure it out. So that's kind of where the logic comes in. Um, but uh, that all your knowledge is still based off of sense perception regardless. So even if you're using logic, you're still just using repeated how I like how I would put it is like repeated sense datum and your life, your life choices have to be corresponding to those, to those sensory corresponding feelings um, because that is because they are infallible to them. Like, because what is, is the atom in the void. And so therefore the one thing that you can know is based off of your sense perception and it will not lie to you. Even if you, so even if you miss like, so like we're on a boat and we're looking out and then we see a bird flying by and I say it's a snail kite and you say it's a seagull and we don't know for sure. And it's like, neither of our senses are lying to us in that moment, but we have improper belief that we placed on top of our sensory experience. Hmm, okay. That betray us. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So that's why they have this thing of the principle of verification where you 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 ensure the truth of your perception. Um 
and so what you do is you have to constantly verify your perception. So maybe this is where the reason kind of comes in. Maybe you're constantly verifying your perceptions by verifying them against your beliefs. And you have to constantly look at a thing like that repeated experience. And then that way, you know what it is. Um, I'm hoping kind that, of honest. Yeah. yeah, I'm hoping that kind of makes sense. Um, yeah, I was just curious if they had like a, I mean, because we know Plato was so like with his three part soul, the mind, you know, reason being such mm-hmm. a such a yeah. a token of what he subscribed to. I was wondering if that came up, but uh, not so uh, uh, apparently. Right. It's not like internal. They're very external, if that's what you mean. So so one of the things is like, I guess the one internal thing would be the principle of non-contradiction, which is probably the most important part, I think, of their epistemology, which is that um, for all natural phenomenon um, that that we can't discern for our senses, like that we can't like truly verify with our senses. um, That means any number of hypotheticals. Uh, any number of postulates that we can come up with 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 deductive logic using materialism it, are all equally true as long as they don't contradict our senses so that's why like if you re- like when you're reading it you're like he has like a million explanations for why something may be the case so like i remember in in lucretius where he's like he's like well the moon may do the moon may be take like emitting its own light or the moon may be borrowing the light from the sun or we may get a new moon every single day or we may have, or like, exactly, it's weird. And he's like, or he's like, or we may have multiple different kinds of moons that then show themselves. And it's like, and he's, but in none of, but none of those contradict his sense perception. And, but because he can't verify anything about the moon itself, they're all equally true. As true long, or acceptable. Well, yeah. There's no, I, no big difference to them. Well, they're all Let's just say to get around that question, let's just say they're all equally valid explanations for the natural phenomenon because none of them contradict his sense perception. And he's constantly used his sense perception to look at the moon and he has all these ideas. But the actual, I guess, truth of the matter is that he can't verify it with his sense perception. So therefore, they're all equally valid and he can't know. And so if you actually get into the letter of Pythocles, um, um, he gives like a number of explanations for in things in nature, but they're all treated as equally valid um, because because his sense perception is able to say, well, it could be any number of these things, but I can't okay. verify which one for sure. So to to close this out, I wanted to uh, uh, jump over to the soul really quick because it is in the same section um, right after he talks about atoms and sense perception. Mm-hmm. He says, in addition, you must bear in mind that the soul plays an important role in causing sensation but would never have achieved sensation unless it were somehow incorporated in the rest of the organism. Ooh. Which sounds like, just again, kind of, I'm, I'm starting to understand their framework for the world, but so, so whereas Plato would say the soul is this external thing, mm-hmm. uh, a meaning um, um, it is apart from, it, it, it will leave you, it is, it is uh, an imperceptible, it doesn't reside in you, this is a very organic, literal like it's another organ within you, the soul. Am I, am I understanding that right? That it's a very, like, it has a very little literal existence in the yes. here and now. Yeah, the soul, the soul is, and when we cover it, you know, but the soul is made of atoms. <laughs> and so, like, it's interesting because when you read about the soul, especially in Lucretius's, like, explanation of it, and I'll try to find it, you know, before we, you know, record that one, um, it, 
it's so good because it's like you read it and you're like, that's so weird that he's like talking about like these. He talks about it as like the soul is really just like like atoms that are spread at different points in your body and that allow the whole perception of your body towards those sensory experiences. And you know what that sounds like to me? The nervous system. Uh-huh. And, and it's like, and so like, I was, I was like, I wrote it down and I was like, we have, like, when we talk about the soul, like I want to emphasize how, like I, when you read it, you're like, Oh my God, this sounds like the nervous system. Like he yeah. waiting the idea of the soul to the nervous system, because what's the highest thing that a, a person can do? Well, their sensory experience, like the sensory experience is the fundamental, like a uh, way that we're able to move and understand and seek higher pleasures in the world for the epicureans and so therefore the nervous system would be the thing that is most akin to the soul because that's what gives us our animation you know what i mean right which is really interesting rather than the soul being this like ethereal thing that we always when we talk about soul like we imagine this like like gaseous ball of light that kind of moves about in a weird way it's like no it's nerves all right right. (laughs) but they wouldn't have known about nerves and nerve endings and synapses and things like that so like they it's like when you read it it's that kind of equation it's really interesting and and to kind of get to that point of like exactly in that quote which is not so much which is a little bit about the soul but he also has to talk about you know he talks a little bit about the idea of forms in there as well um because it's like how do you like how to like know things and as they're he has a line there where he's like no things as their whole part or uh, how does that line again do you know what i'm talking about what i read from or like yeah, later yeah. In the right where you read from um again you must bear in mind that the soul plays an important role in causing the uh, sensation but would never have achieved sensation unless it were somehow incorporated into the rest of the organism incorporated into the rest of the organism so that line so like you can also think about it as not necessarily as like your own self-perception but exactly what i'm gonna talk in really weird like how to put it like the constituent parts of a whole so so as to say that let me ask you the question is there sweetness like the analogy that lucretius uses do you believe that there is sweetness apart from honey sugar but mm-hmm. i guess a better way to put it is that <laughs> is there sweetness apart from sweet things oh no it, it exists in sweet things so of sweet things however but it's really just the perception of the sweet thing well accidental properties don't exist in some way apart from the whole right nor like so for for plato sweet does exist as a, as of, a form right exactly yeah. but for them they're like they don't exist apart from the whole and 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 the sum of a thing and the also importantly is that the sum of a thing um nor does this their sum constituate the entirety of the body so like let me just read <laughs> um <laughs> Meaning to say that the sweetness of honey doesn't exist as either analogy or concept or existentially, existentially beyond the whole body of honey. So like even all honey together, like the whole composite parts of honey, does that mean it's sweet? Therefore, all of the secondary properties of honey, color, taste, smell, consistency, viscosity are not separate items that make a whole, but rather have no being outside of the body. Very different from what we've we've read from the other boys right Mm. Mm. so it's not like it's not like ah, man it's not like austin is 
millions of different parts that then come together to make a whole. You're just whole Austin. Like they don't, they don't exist outside of you. So like, again, I'm going to keep going with the, the, let's go with a tree or with honey. Honey's a good idea. Uh, that honey, all of its properties. If you think of honey in that, you go to your cabinet, you pull out the little jar of honey, all the properties of honey, it's golden color. It's thickness, it's richness, it's sweetness, um, how it's how it's a liquid, but it's more has a, yeah, has a solidity to it. All of that. None of those properties exist outside of honey or exist as little parts that then come together to make a whole bit. Just honey. It is just, just honey. weird because it's not because it's the atoms. It's atoms. Right. right. <laughs> If, if if you took away any of those parts, it would no it's longer honey. be honey. Yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, hmm, hmm. Yeah. So, so you see how that, how that relates? <laughs> you see how that relates to what that quote as well? About the so, soul. And that yeah. also relates to not only the soul but also your sense perception, because it's like you, you don't you don't just take you don't understand properties as standalone, as concepts as individual ideas, but you can only understand a thing as being part of that thing. So like, if you would think back about the forms and we were talking about the tree and I was like, or the cow and I was like, well, the cow is like it. And I was saying that it, it exists in, in a, in a state of flux because it's like, it's like, it's not, it's, we say it's large, but it's not actually like large itself. And so, but he's saying that, no, 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 like the large, your understanding of large is only simply because it exists within that material thing and you're comparing it to other things. Large doesn't like you couldn't understand large if it wasn't if, right. if it was outside of it. All right. Well, I think that's a that's a fun kind of tease uh, uh, to end on to look forward to. What do you think our next episode is going to be on the, the next section we're going to do? We do soul. Probably do soul. Okay. We do soul. And then we could do we could do gods as well. Soul and gods. Right. They're not necessarily related topics, but I think like those are the fun. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the fun and then ones. Ethics after that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, th- I would say ethics is, is probably, we could do two episodes on ethics because that's where it gets like super interesting. Yeah. I think. Well, so, so guys, thanks for joining us and look forward to that content when it does arrive. Um, so we hope that you've enjoyed. If you have, be sure to leave us some positive feedback. And again, if you ever want to leave a specific feedback or suggestions, uh, feel free to email them to the Academy podcast at outlook.com. Please do. Uh, you can follow us on our various Instagram, uh, whatever social media thing, <laughs> Instagram, whatever digital thing. thing. Um, and uh, until then, thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us, guys.